Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to have you here at one this morning. This week is Palm Sunday, if you weren't aware of that already. And we are in the final week of the season of Lent. After this Sunday, we start Holy Week in the lead up to uh, Easter, as we've already mentioned during the announcements. And during Lent, we have gathered each Sunday around the cross of Christ, quite literally, to ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And we've looked at the cross from several angles already. The cross as ransom, the cross as justice, the cross as an act of love. And we have not exhausted its meaning, not by any means, not even close. But today we are coming to the cross in order to see it as the victory of God, as the victory of Jesus over the powers of evil. Or to put it another way, Jesus' victory over the Satan, over the devil, the cross as victory. See, at the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Satan was overthrown, was stripped of his authority. Uh, as we saw in chapter 12 of our Revelation series, verse 10, it's on the screen, at the death and resurrection of Jesus, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser, that is the devil, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. He has been overthrown, though he's still in a rage, as Revelation 12 tells us, because he knows his time is short. He is on borrowed time, friends, and he knows this. Now, I have a few scriptures that I want to read to lay a foundation for what I'm going to say today. Um, so let's jump into these. Verse, the first one is from John chapter 12, verse 31, and this is in the context of Jesus talking about his impending crucifixion. He's on the way to Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen when he gets there. Verse uh, 30, Jesus said, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, it's one of the ways in which Jesus referred to the Satan, now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, he means, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And then in Colossians 2, Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our indebtedness. And we looked at that when we talked about the cross as justice, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross as triumph, the cross as victory. Hebrews 2.14, Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Or my favorite one, 1 John 3.8, partly because it's the shortest, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Let me pray. Almighty and ever-living 
God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also to share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So as I mentioned, it's Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, we commemorate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem that set in motion his final showdown with the principalities and powers, both natural and unnatural. When Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, it was an invasion, that, uh, an invasion from heaven that would culminate in the overthrow of the one we call the Satan. And I'm just going to skip forward here for the sake of time. Uh, I was going to explain a bit more about what's going on there, but we'll have to do that another day. In, in any case, what's happening in the Palm Sunday moment is that Jesus is staging an invasion. There's going to be a deliberate confrontation with the principalities and powers. You see, with his triumphal entry, and if you know the story... Jesus is allowing himself at this moment as he enters into Jerusalem to be proclaimed king, to be proclaimed the king of Israel. By the way, it's the first time he's allowed it to be done publicly. The first time he's allowed the people to proclaim him as king publicly. And then if you know what happens next, he goes up to the temple and instead of affirming the ministry of the temple, what does he do? He drives out the money changers and he turns over the tables and he says, this house was meant to be a house of prayer, but it has become a den of thieves. And who is the father of all thieves and all liars and all murderers? Jesus is very clear about who the Satan is and what the Satan has come to do. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem to provoke a confrontation. He's challenging the corrupt Roman political power and military power, and he's also challenging or confronting the corrupt Jewish religious power. Incidentally, the two beasts named in the book of Revelation. And Jesus surely knew that these two actions were the kinds of confrontations that gets a person killed. They would not go unchallenged. The empire was going to strike back. And so the conspiracy to murder Jesus ascends to top priority. And by Friday, Jesus has been arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified, all in the matter of days. And the principalities and powers no doubt congratulated themselves that they thought that the threat of Jesus had been eliminated, but they could not have been more wrong. For in the crucifixion of Jesus, it was the principalities and powers themselves who were overthrown, not Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if the principalities and powers had known the mystery of the gospel, like if they had known what they were doing, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory because it was the moment when they were undone. So what does this mean? The mo this moment, this moment of Jesus' death exposes the powers for what they truly are, friends. This subverts their, uh, their pretentious claim to legitimacy. And it's at this moment that those powers are 
ultimately the one we call the Satan, driven out, cast out, and overthrown from being the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, as Jesus calls him. And at the coming of Christ, and especially at his crucifixion, friends, God is at work in the world to stage a global rebellion, a global uh, act of sabotage in order to invade the corrupt uh, uh, powers and purposes of evil. Or as 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared is that he might destroy the work of the devil. Now, you might be here this morning and you're thinking, gosh, this church is talking about the devil. Someone let me out of here. The devil, he goes by many names, the Satan, Lucifer, or Jesus' favorite word for him, in fact, was Beelzebub. It's a word from the Old Testament, but it literally means Lord of the Flies. And I think it was intended as an insult, right? Like, where do flies gather? They gather around dead things and other things as well. And one of the problems here is that when we hear the word devil, we almost immediately think of films like The Exorcist or some other kind of horror movie, or we picture in our minds a caricature of a man in, dressed in red with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, and it seems like those are our only options. Uh, you know, maybe you don't believe in the existence of the devil at all. If you're like me, you try to be a sensible and thoughtful person, you know, you value science, maybe you have lots of doubts. Maybe you struggle with skepticism. I, I know believing in God is hard enough, but believing in something like the devil just makes it even harder. And the whole thing's kind of weird and awkward, and we prefer not to talk about it. Some others of us come from traditions where we're very comfortable with all of this, and we use language like spiritual warfare. You know, like the church is at war against the evil powers in the world. And we've also seen this kind of language used to really hurt people. You know, when the devil gets invoked, often it's in order, to be, in order that it might be thrown at another person or a group of people, like to demonize them, quite literally. And so we've done a lot of damage and caused a lot of harm with flippant language about the devil, and that's something that we need to repent of. So perhaps you're here this morning and you don't really want to talk about this, not just because of doubt or skepticism, but because it makes you feel afraid, it feels dangerous, and it feels unnecessary. But... We can't do that, because if you want to talk about how Jesus understood his own mission, how Jesus understood his coming kingdom into the world, then you can't ignore the devil, especially when we talk about the meaning of the cross. And part of the reason for this is especially because the very first thing that Jesus did in his ministry after he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism was what? He went into the desert to face the devil and be tempted for 40 days. And following that, because he did not succumb to the temptations of the evil one, Jesus then spent a large portion of his ministry delivering people from the power of the devil, from the grip of evil and suffering and death. And so here's how C.S. Lewis, we quote a lot of C.S. Lewis in this church, uh, I do anyway, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it, and I have this on the slide, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who, has, who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin, and that, that you, this universe is at war. But it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks of it as a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. 
Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hooves and horns and all? Well, what the time of day is has, sorry, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know, and I'm not particular about the hooves and horns, but in other respects, my answer is yes, I do, although I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. We live in enemy-occupied territory, but friends, at the heart of the gospel is this story that the rightful king has landed, and he's now calling all of us to join him in his great universal campaign of sabotage. We have been recruited, friends, a campaign against the spiritual forces of sin and evil at work in the world. What does that mean? Let me remind you of what Fleming Rutledge says. I quoted this in the first week. Um, It's on the screen. According to the witness of Holy Scripture, the Old and New Testaments alike, sin is the colossal X factor in human life. It is not something we do so much as it is something done to us by our mortal foe, the alien power that has lured us into becoming its agents. There is no room for sentiment here. The stakes are too high. The cross rears up over all human life because it is the scene of God's climactic battle against the power of a malignant and implacable enemy. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment, but first let me say... When the Scriptures speak of the Satan, they mean this malignant and implacable enemy, this power that does, in fact, feel so alien to us, evil. Now, we may struggle to define it, to find what evil is or even where it comes from, but we know it when we encounter it, don't we? We know it when we see it. See, the word Satan means adversary or opponent, and if you can't accept the idea of Satan as a, or the devil as a kind of being or a kind of person, that's fine. Just think of it as the corrupt power that stands behind everything that is evil, that motivates evil. And that's really what it is. It is truly the power which stands behind all sin, all suffering, all disease, and all death. It is that which opposes everything that is loving and good and beautiful. Why? Because evil cannot create Evil cannot create, only God can create. All evil can do is corrupt and poison what God has already made. That is what we mean when we say the Satan, the one who corrupts uh, everything that God has made. Now, again, we may not know how to explain it, but we know it when we see it. When something happens in our lives or in the world that causes us to cry out, that is wrong, that is unjust, that should not happen. How could this be? The world should not be like this. That's when we've encountered evil, and all of us feel it. We know it when we see it. And we've felt its presence all the way through human history. And I think we know it because we're made in the image of God, and so we have an innate sense of what is good. And so when we encounter things that are not good, we feel it, we understand it. That's the power that inflamed the Holocaust. How do you explain something like the Holocaust without saying there must have been something malignant at work behind the ones who did such horrible things? It is the power that lured Europeans to enslave millions of Africans. It's the power that still motivates men to traffic women for sex. It is the power at work 
encouraging a person to start shooting in a school filled with little children, as we saw again this week. It is disgusting, it is repulsive, it is grotesque, it is blasphemous, it's evil. And that's what we mean when we say the Satan. We know it's wrong. It's the opposite of everything. It is the opposite of everything that Jesus represents. And so when we see the way of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, crashing into the way of Satan, when Jesus came to sabotage the corrupt powers of this world, that encounter was not pretty. That encounter got him crucified. That invasion led us and the powers that motivate us to murder the Son of God. And yet, friends, we see the beauty of the love of Jesus that even from the cross, even from the cross, and this is the difference between God and us, even from the cross, Jesus is crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, I pray that all of us would know the immensity of your grace here this morning. Because we are not guiltless, friends. Talking about evil as a, a malignant and implacable force doesn't mean that we are not guilty of participating with it, of joining forces with it. All of us do it uh, in our pettiness, in our jealousies, in our lust, in our anger, in our lies, in our unforgiveness our power games, our greed, our selfishness. That's where all of the great evils that we've seen through human history always begin with choices that we make, all of us, to partner with what is not good and let it have its way with us. And if we give in to it, we turn into monsters. We are part of the problem. So I want to be clear about this. As much as we might uh, deserve it, Jesus' great sabotage campaign however, is not directed at people, but at the powers, at the Satan that have taken the world captive since the very beginning. And in this climactic battle against those powers on the cross, Hebrews 2 tells us, Christ came and shared in our humanity, joined with us, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That's what Jesus came to do, to break the power of death by death, to break the power of death by death. Christ came to overthrow the Satan and set the world free from his grip. How did he do that? Now, Brian Zand writes, and I have this on the slide, I believe, when the cruel Roman governor Pontius Pilate and the corrupt Jewish high priest Joseph Caiaphas colluded together to murder the Son of God, the cross exposes the claims of the principalities and powers to be nothing but empty propaganda. Paul says it like this, he, that is Jesus, disarmed the principalities and powers and put them to public shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Now that's a Bible verse that you may have heard before, but how on earth could we possibly call the cross a triumph? Right? Surely it's the opposite of a triumph. Surely it's the opposite of a victory. See, crucifixion in the ancient world was the most cruel and inhuman form of execution that people had yet come up with. And part of the point of, the cru of crucifixion was its humiliation. Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims 
from consideration as members of the human race. That was its function, to utterly shame and dehumanize its victims. Think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things, willingly submitted himself to a form of execution of which its express purpose was to literally dehumanize someone to strip them of their identity, to strip them of their dignity, to strip them of any sense of pride. And that's the scandal of a crucified God, like it doesn't make sense. And I hope through this series we haven't created the impression that we're trying to explain all of this because there are some elements of the cross that are just unexplainable that are mysterious. I mean, how could the Lord of glory be put through such shame and humiliation? How could it be possible? Right? There's no good answer for that. No human can come up with a good answer for that. But I think this is what Paul means when he, he says uh, in, in Colossians 2 that Jesus triumphed over the powers and stripped them of their power, shaming them and triumphing over them. I think what Paul means is that it's not ultimately the Lord of of all who was put to shame at the cross. In fact, it becomes the moment of his greatest glory. It becomes the moment of his greatest glory. The shame that they tried to heap on Jesus, the humiliation they tried to heap on Jesus was ultimately heaped on them, it backfired upon them. Why? Because in the cross, the claims of the powers, both human and demonic, are revealed for what they truly are in all their naked ambition. We're shown, friends, where that kind of power ultimately leads, and where does it lead? To death. And that's the warning all the way through Scripture. If you try to grasp after power for yourself, if you try to take control, you will be corrupted by it, and it will kill you. It will lead to death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is everlasting life. So, we see on on the cross, as the Lord of glory is crucified, what's ultimately being revealed is where human power and demonic power leads. It leads to death, it leads to ruin, it leads to God-forsakenness, the God-forsakenness of the cross is a sign of the ultimate destiny of those powers who are trying to run the world. So why was Jesus' death necessary? Here's how Fleming Rutledge puts it, and this is a long quote, I know, but it's just so awesome that I couldn't edit it down any further than I did, so please forgive me and and enjoy this. Just take a breath and enjoy this. It is one of the best things I've read about the cross in a long time. Forgiveness is not enough. Belief in redemption is not enough. Wishful thinking about the intrinsic goodness of every human being is not enough. Inclusion is not a sufficiently inclusive message. That just means like, let's just open it up to everybody. Nor does it deliver real justice. There are some things, many things that must be condemned and set right if we are to proclaim a God of both justice and mercy. Only a power independent of this world order can overcome the grip of the enemy of God's purposes for his creation. Next slide. Jesus Christ offered himself 
to be the condemned and rejected one, giving himself up in full knowledge of what would happen to him. And in perfect union with his father, he went to Calvary, carrying his own cross upon which he was nailed, despised and rejected by men at the historical time and place of his inhuman and godless crucifixion, all the demonic powers loose in the world convened in Jerusalem and unleashed their forces upon the incarnate Son of God, derelict, outcast, And God forsaken, he hung there as the representative of all humanity and suffered condemnation in the place of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. Isn't that incredible? That is the meaning of the gospel, the heart of the gospel. Why did God do this? Why didn't he just show up in glory and crush his enemies? Why didn't he just extend his hand and squeeze the devil like a pimple? Well, the reason is because if he had done that, we would have been squeezed right along with him because we've all participated in his lies and violence and corruption. We are guilty too, right? Be careful what you wish for. But also, consider this. An almighty God who exerts his will over his enemies and forces them to obey at the threat of violence, that would have led to our utter dehumanization. Jesus didn't come and force us to bow the knee. Instead, he was dehumanized on our behalf. If he'd done the opposite, we would have been the ones dehumanized. We would have been enslaved to God's power. We'd be, we'd be trading one violent overlord, the devil, for another. Jesus could not defeat the devil's tactics by using the devil's tactics. You understand that, right? Jesus could not defeat the devil by acting like the devil. It had to be another way. It had to be a way of nonviolence. It had to be a way of peace. It had to be a way of suffering and surrender. It had to be the way of death. It had to be the way of the cross. It had to be. It had to be. It could not have been any other way or we would have been enslaved to an implacable God to whom we could never escape or from whom we could never escape. We'd just have a Satan by another name, no longer a loving savior, but a murderous tyrant. Instead, friends, Jesus willingly takes on the worst of what human and demonic power can unleash. He was crushed and dehumanized for our sake. He endured and absorbed the worst of what we humans can do in order that he might in return give us the gift of everlasting life. He took our violence and our murder and our hatred and, re- and transformed it into love and forgiveness and grace and compassion and life. That's what the cross gives us. That's what it means. This is what is ours in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us lavished, not just doles it out if you're good, like a reward, like a cookie. You've been a good boy today. You've been a good girl today. I'll give you a little bit of grace. Here's a little reward. No, he lavishes grace upon grace toward us undeserving, miserable sinners. And he does it every single day. His mercies are new every morning. Hosanna, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice 
and be glad in it. Hosanna, the King of kings, the Lord, the Son of God has come, the Messiah has come, and this is the meaning of the cross and the promise of his resurrection. And so, friends, if you want to receive what is on offer to you this morning, if you would like to join your life to the Son of God, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 10,000th time, it doesn't matter, I want to invite you to take a moment and pray with me. We're going to pray a very simple prayer of confession and forgiveness. It's on the screen. And if you're able, I encourage you uh, to kneel. Why don't we kneel if, we, if we're able? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Friends, please stand and let me declare something precious over us this morning, that since God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of his death, which he by which he purchased our redemption, freed us from our sins, and gained eternal victory over the works of the evil one. I tell you this morning, your sins are forgiven, and you have everlasting life with your Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are going to come to the table in response to that mercy and receive the signs of the bread and the wine as symbols of his body and blood in an, an act of thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. The band's going to play and I invite you now to come forward to the table. Our ushers will direct you.